Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. As the U.S. healthcare system searches for a way to address the poor health and high healthcare costs of Americans, one concept has risen to the top and received a lot of attention social determinants of health. These are the conditions in which people are born, live, and work that impact their health, and they are mostly responsible for health inequities. Health systems and payers and other stakeholders are increasingly paying attention to social determinants because addressing them can lead to healthier individuals and lower healthcare use later in a person's life. There are a number of conditions that are considered social determinants of health, including access to educational, economic, and job opportunities, transportation options, public safety, and housing. In this podcast, we focus on the issue of housing and how communities are working to get people into housing so their health can improve. First, we speak with Kenny LaPointe at Oregon Housing and Community Services, who has been involved in a number of housing efforts in Oregon. In healthcare in general, there's a small percentage of people that account for the majority of spending. In Medicaid, it's estimated that it's just 5% of beneficiaries who account for more than half of all spending. So if you could just talk about the purpose that housing serves to try to bring down the cost of those expensive patients. Sure. So, I mean, first, first of all, I think providing housing opportunity for folks who are experiencing homelessness or at risk of homelessness is, is really just the right thing to do. It saves lives and it saves public resources, which are already super limited, and we've got to be prudent in our utilization of those resources. Um, in, in Oregon, we had a recent study done by the Center for Outcomes Research and Education that included 145 housing properties of three different types, um, and this happened in Portland. And the housing types were family housing, permanent supportive housing, and housing for seniors and people with disabilities. And the study found that costs to healthcare systems were lower for all groups after people moved into affordable housing, um, 8% lower for families, 14% lower for residents of permanent supportive housing, and 16% lower for seniors and uh, folks with disabilities, uh, with an overall healthcare cost reduction of 12%. Uh, in addition to that, after one year after moving into affordable housing, the residents reported that outpatient primary care utilization had increased by 20%, emergency department usage had fallen by 18%, and access to care had increased by 40%. Um, in addition, quality of care improved by 38%. So we, we saw some um, significant changes to the system um, that really result in overall cost saving and as demonstrated in the study improved the health outcomes for the individuals who receive that care. Now is this just getting people into housing delivers those kinds of results or is there more being done in a social support way around those individuals as well? It's really a whole system change. I mean, we can we can take a look at programs individually. We can place folks into housing um, and not address the other needs that they might have, um, like healthcare needs or behavioral healthcare needs, substance use disorders. Um, you know, seniors need, the need for seniors to be able to age in place. If we're not like making a full system 
dynamic change, um, then we're, we're going to be limited in our successes. And that is something that um, we definitely need to do is make big systemic changes to the system. So, um, you know, this is more than just placing folks in housing. This is also providing um, better access to services, again, as demonstrated in that um, Center for Outcomes Research and Education study. Um, much, much of this was related to just providing greater access to care that is really more place-based, um, you know, putting clinics on affordable housing sites has proven to be very successful. We're providing uh, low-income residents with access to services that they historically have struggled to get to. You know, they, they often lack transportation, and um, if you're bringing services to them, they're much more likely to um, access them because of the ease of use. I was just wondering if Oregon has done work with programs where the housing is fully subsidized and the people getting into the housing aren't paying for the housing. Certainly, and, and I would say that that fits sort of into a permanent supportive housing model, and that is where we're taking the sort of the most vulnerable folks, I think like the population you mentioned that is costing the healthcare system um, the most in Medicaid dollars. Um, we're taking those folks who can often be chronically homeless, um, often they have mental health, behavioral health issues. Um, we're taking them, they have literally no income we're taking them and using a variety of, of braided funding streams to ensure that they have access to safe and stable housing, they have access to services, and then there is rent assistance available um, so that they're not having to try and figure out how to come up with the income to pay the rent on a monthly basis. We really feel that we need to get them into housing and then we start to address the other um, needs that they have, whether it be behavioral health care, uh, physical health care, uh, the need for education, the need for um, workforce training. Um, that's kind of the approach that we're taking to that. So there is there is a number of places that do that. Um, and again, we call them permanent supportive housing. Um, that is something that we are working on bringing to scale in Oregon because we have a few really great projects um, that are doing that, but we need to expand on that and really take it across the state of Oregon, and that has not been done to this point. And with these permanent supportive housing, I mean, are there are there limits in place? Do they really have no defined end for the people in the housing, or is there is there at some point a limit where the person gets rotated out of that housing? The hope is always that you're able to move anybody who is um, able to, to move them on and increase their income and, and create a, uh, a self-sufficient household so they can move into market rate housing. Now, that's not always achievable because you have some seniors that are going to need um, the access to affordable housing forever. And you have some folks who have mental health conditions that are going to require some level of care for the remainder of their life. And the same thing with uh, folks with developmental disabilities. We know that there's, they're often going to need access to affordable housing um, pretty much for the rest of their lives. So it says, per, I mean, it's permanent in the name. So the idea behind it is that there really is not a ton of barriers to getting in, um, and there is no end date. But 
we utilize the housing as a base to provide those other services that I mentioned before to help kind of get folks into a self-sufficient position. One of the other things was the people who are going into these programs, um, how are they being identified and chosen for the program? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, typically, that has been done locally and really based on community need. Um, I, I think that the state is probably going to be playing a more active role in setting target populations. Uh, this is, um, we, have, we have a supportive housing work group that the state has stood up, so Oregon Housing and Community Services in collaboration with the Oregon Health Authority, which is our Medicaid agency, we have stood up a supportive housing work group that is really taking a look at what policy barriers might we be able to um, make movement on so we can better serve folks through supportive housing. Um, but in addition, we're going to be, we're really looking at target populations and who we should be focusing on. We also have a mandate uh, through what is called the Oregon Performance Plan with the U.S. Department of Justice. And that, that performance plan has us paying specific attention to the housing needs of folks with severe mental illness and those with substance use disorders. So we do have a target population in some way um, that we are working on at this point in time. And what goes into making something like this work? I mean, I imagine there's got to be a lot of partnerships to get different organizations involved. There's got to be a lot of moving parts to make sure it works and that the outcomes are there. Yeah, partnerships are, are critical, and those partnerships are really dependent upon uh, the, the service needs of the individuals who are living in the housing. So that goes back to the, the target population question. Um, but some of the critical things for making a successful project is, uh, again, you have to have services adequate to meet the target population needs. If you're serving folks who have behavioral health conditions, then you uh, must have adequate services to meet their needs. And that could mean that you have a site-based caseworker who's providing case management and therapeutic services in the community. Um, so they could be based right on site there. Um, some of our our uh, developers and partners actually have clinic space in their affordable housing um, complex. And that clinic space is typically adjacent to property management staff, uh, which, which kind of leads to the second thing that is needed for success, and that is to have property management that understands the needs of the population that you're serving uh, with, with thoughtful coordination between management and service providers the community is really going to be successful. Um, kind of in that example I gave you before, let's say you're serving a population with behavioral health needs and you have a resident who is schizophrenic and say they have an episode that might normally be an eviction-worthy offense. I mean, let's say like yelling and banging on the walls or something like that. You want that situation to be dealt with in coordination with management and the service provider. You want them to work together to get the resident resources needed to address the overall um, mental health episode. And that needs to be the first area of focus. Addressing the client's mental health needs should always be the top priority, not removing the client from the home. Uh, there's a societal loss when, we, when someone loses their home and becomes homeless. Mental health treatment becomes extremely difficult. Physical health and complex 
disease management becomes near impossible, interactions with other public systems increase, costing taxpayers billions of dollars. I mean, educational achievement levels drop, and that impacts the future of our workforce. I could really like go on and on and name a ton of other ways that housing instability is degrading to overall community health. So, you know, those two things, um, the service provider and management coordination is really, really critical to uh, the success of the project and then making sure that you have adequate services to meet the target population needs. And with some of these programs where maybe you've got a large number of people in this sort of housing, what is the PR like with the community so that they know what this is and that they are comfortable, that there's no negative PR sort of around who these people are? I mean, there's negative, there's negative PR, so I'm not, I won't candy coat it. I think there's just um, misperceptions about, you know, what, what the population is and, and how they're interacting with community. And it is proven that if you, um, if you integrate, you know, folks with behavioral health conditions or developmental disabilities into the community, that not only do those folks come become more successful, but the community overall becomes more successful because you have a better population mix, you have more diversity, so it really improves the overall community health. Uh, you know, we, we do a lot, um, we've been doing a lot of intentional proactive outreach um, and training on, um, on what the population looks like that is being served to really prevent that nimbious attitude or the, you know, not in my backyard attitude. And so we're, we're getting very proactive in our approaches to that. And I think a lot of that, that PR approach involves talking about the success of, of the existing communities that are doing this work. You had mentioned that these programs, they'll sometimes have clinics there. They've, they've got different services attached to it. Can you talk a little bit about funding for these services and these providers, is this mostly Medicare funding? Is it health systems in the area helping to fund it? How does that work? In some cases, you know, you have uh, clinical providers that are put on site. And so often they're able to bill Medicaid for, um, for somebody who's enrolled in the Medicaid program. Um, in other cases, you know, coordinated care organizations are funding uh, community health workers through their flexible spending or benefits programs. So it just really depends. I don't know that we have come up with a set structure for funding this. Um, we've been making it work. I think we've been very innovative and collaborative as a state. And so we're seeing coordinated care organizations partner with local housing providers. Um, you know, the housing providers playing off of their expertise um, in developing and managing communities, and then uh, the healthcare system coming alongside and really playing off of their expertise and providing the services that are needed to the residents. We would really like to, to maximize the utilization of Medicaid and Medicare authorities um, and finance services under those authorities when at all possible, because that allows us to utilize more of our more of the money that is set aside for housing development to do just that. So yeah, we we definitely want to maximize the use of those resources. 
you know, I would I would also say that we, in general, just need more funding for housing capital. We've got vacancy rates in Oregon that are under 2%, and we really actually have to build our way out of this situation in some way. We're estimating that we have about 130,000 unit gap, um, rental home unit gap in Oregon. So we can't really rely on existing the existing inventory of homes to meet the population needs. We've been very fortunate that Governor Brown and the Oregon legislature have taken uh, heavy leadership roles in this area and have been responsive. And in the 2017 legislative session, we received historic investments in affordable housing. We got over $150 million in new housing resources, including $80 million in funding for our LIFT program, which creates more affordable rental homes and home ownership opportunities. We received $40 million in emergency housing assistance funding to prevent and end homelessness. And we received another $25 million to help preserve our existing affordable housing stock. Great. And then finally, I was just wondering for other states, for other local governments that are looking to get involved with something like this, do you have something that's like a key best practice for getting the ball rolling or ensuring that something like this is successful? So um, I've been I've been doing this work for a while, um, the integration work, and I think one of the biggest pieces to to kicking this off, while while I don't have like a toolkit that I could pass along, I would recommend um, that folks just start getting in the room with whether it's the healthcare system or the workforce system, the education system, just getting in the room and breaking down the language barriers. I think we really need to get to a point where we're understanding the lingo on some level in each system because we often talk over each other. We've, we've all got our own set of acronyms and intricacies to our systems that do not make sense to folks outside of our system. And so if we can break down some of those um, language barriers, that is extremely helpful to starting the relationship and understanding what our base is. Um, as an example, you know, we've, we've held a, a number of forums in the state where we've brought together coordinated care organizations, hospital systems, behavioral health providers, um, local housing authorities, um, community action agencies, which are our, our homeless um, system providers, continuums of care. We have brought them together to just say, okay, when, when you say housing voucher, what does that mean? How does that work? What does it pay for? And when you say managed care, what does that mean? And what, what can that pay for? And then we can really establish that base needed to know where there is alignment opportunity. Do you have any final thoughts you wanted to share? I appreciate the opportunity. I think this is great work, and we need to we need to keep the ball rolling. Um, there's a lot of momentum around it, especially in the state of Oregon, and I know we're we're capitalizing on it, especially um, as we take on this statewide supportive housing strategy work group. So, yeah, I look forward to seeing what other states are doing, and I think we can all learn from each other. Great. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Laura. I appreciate it. 
In Los Angeles County, a public-private partnership found a return on its investment in support of housing and combating homelessness for people with complex medical and behavioral health issues. In 2012, the county's Department of Health Services launched Housing for Health, which included interim housing and permanent supportive housing. Since the beginning of the program, the county has made more than 3,400 housing placements, and in 2014, LA County commissioned RAND to evaluate the impact of the program's permanent supportive housing. Next, we spoke with Sarah Hunter, the lead author on that RAND study, to understand what impacts on health the Housing for Health program actually had. Sarah Hunter is a senior behavioral and social scientist at the RAND Corporation. In December 2017, she was the lead author on a study that analyzed the outcomes of a public-private effort in Los Angeles County to provide permanent supportive housing to people with complex medical and behavioral health issues who are experiencing homelessness. Thank you for joining me today, Sarah. The uh, first question I had was if you could just explain the model that was put in place in Los Angeles County and what RAND was trying to determine with its evaluation of the program. Sure. Um, the model was operated by the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services, um, and they operate several hospitals and outpatient clinics around Los Angeles County. So they developed a model in which they um, found people that were um, frequent utilizers of either their hospitals or clinics and were experiencing homelessness and referred them to their program called Housing for Health. Once people were identified um, and clearly homeless, they linked them up with intensive case management and started looking for um, a permanent supportive housing unit that would meet their needs, their individual needs in the program. Um, and then uh, they received permanent supportive housing. Um, our project, um, do you want me to tell you a little bit about that now or? Yeah, sure. Do you have questions about that? So our project was to examine the healthcare and other social service utilization for the 12 months prior to entry into the permanent supportive housing and 12 months after entering the housing um, to look at whether the program um, resulted in any changes in health and other social service utilization and the associated costs with that. And so I guess then, you know, what were the ultimate findings? What was the ultimate impact on costs and health outcomes of this program? Um, so we looked at uh, utilization and costs associated with six different um, social service departments, health services, mental health services, substance abuse treatment services, general relief, which is a cash subsidy, um, a jail days, and stays on probation. And we found dramatic decreases, especially in the health service utilization, post-housing, when you looked at the uh, costs of those services for healthcare utilization, um, it went down by over 60%. We then took into account the costs of the case management and permanent supportive housing. Um, and even after factoring in the cost of those supportive services and housing, um, the program saved the county money. So there was a 20% savings 
even after accounting for the program costs. When you think about these programs, housing, it seems like such an expensive resource and then all the other services that kind of go into this. But I think people might not realize just how expensive the ER visits and the avoidable hospitalizations are for this group. So if you could talk a little bit about the ROI, a little bit more in depth about the housing and support programs versus what the county was seeing with these ER visits and avoidable hospitalizations. Um, sure. So, yeah, oftentimes these sorts of programs just tend to break even or sometimes they even cost a little more. It just, you know, it really depends on the service utilization of the population that's receiving the benefit. In this case, the program specifically was targeting people or frequent utilizers of health services. Um, and so, you know, no surprise, that's kind of where we see the biggest reduction was in those costly, intense services in emergency rooms and inpatient stays. So was it all good news or were there some data points that you didn't see improve or change as much as you would have hoped or at all maybe? Yeah. So, you know, what was sort of a um, non-intuitive finding and need some follow-up to further explore was we actually found there were very few individuals that incurred um, time in jail, were incarcerated, pre and post housing. But of those that were, we did see actually an increase in jail stays for the small percentage of people who were incarcerated during the 12 months, um, either pre or post housing. That increase was and the associated cost increase with that was over 80%. There were some changes um, locally in policies around uh, incarceration and, and sentencing procedures that might help explain this. Um, and we, it was beyond the scope of our study to really examine that. And LA has a high rate of homeless individuals. I think it might actually be the highest in the country. Um, so do you think the findings would be similar in other parts of the country where there aren't as many homeless individuals? Or do you think these programs work best in the areas where the homeless rate is, is very high? Yeah, I think um, New York still has the highest homeless population in terms of all-out numbers, in terms of that point-in-time count that happens every year, every other year. But what you see, what's really uh, intractable in LA is the um, the rate, the high rate of the unsheltered homeless, which results, I think, in a lot of visible homelessness in and around the county um, because people don't have anywhere to go. There are not nearly as many shelters in Los Angeles as there are in New York. Are our findings transferable? You know, that's a good question. I, L.A. is is very expensive to live, and they were able to do this program here and house. The, we looked at the first 890 people housed in the program with a less than 1,000 a month um, housing voucher. But now they've expanded the program, and they to date they've provided over 3,500 housing placements with that cost. So it seems feasible, but I know it's getting harder and harder in Los Angeles with the high cost of living and housing. Mm -hmm. You think it actually might be cheaper in other places in the country where the housing prices are 
uh, less. And what were some of the best practices that Los Angeles County had implemented that if other cities or counties are looking to implement such a program, they might want to consider adopting? Well, we didn't do a formal, intense process evaluation to understand implementation, but I can tell you that they adopted a housing first approach, which is this idea of not putting barriers to housing once they identified someone in need. Um, They tried to place them as quickly as possible. Um, They did also do something that's somewhat innovative in that they linked people to case management before housing and and there was no change in that case management before and after housing. So oftentimes house services are delivered in this area is that you get, you know, you're sort of assigned to a new caseworker or outreach specialist or um, social worker, depending on what phase in the process you're in. So if you're still living on the street, you're interacting with the outreach worker. And then once you get into shelter, you're with shelter staff. And then once you move into housing, you're assigned to a new case manager that's linked to that housing. So they tried to streamline that and link someone right away with the case management service provision and not change that um, throughout uh, the program um, and throughout one's stay, depending on where they were in the process. And that might actually improve care because there's a continuum, there's a steady continuum of uh, care provided instead of being switched to different care management throughout the process. And then were there any limitations that you think are important or could sort of impact the findings and how they should be interpreted? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, this is just a, you know, as I explained, kind of like a simple pre-post-test design. Um, So we only looked at those people who were identified and enrolled in the program and the service utilization, a much more rigorous approach so that we could formally attribute the changes in time would be to also study a comparison group. So that would be a similar group of individuals um, who didn't receive housing to, to, to compare how their service utilization changes over time to this group who were housed. So those were all the questions I had. Is there anything else that you want to add that we didn't get to talk about that was included in the report? I, well, I can also tell you that we did do a um, survey, a brief health survey among a small subset of individuals that were housed. And this helped us gain information about their um, health functioning. And we were able to see that this program serves a population with high needs, with typically uh, multiple chronic health conditions. But as a result of the program, it, it appears that their mental health functioning did improve over the first year they were engaged in the program. And overall, their physical health was lower than, you know, population norms. um, And that didn't improve over time. We think that is a result of them experiencing chronic multiple conditions. They're probably going to require, you know, management um, over the course of their lives. To learn more about social determinants of health, see the show notes for more research and news coverage.